This morning, if you've already got your Bibles open, we're going to be looking at a passage that, uh, as I was preparing this week, I actually thought probably would have been better suited to about three weeks ago, because uh, three weeks ago was tax day, right? And uh, in this particular passage, uh, Matthew twenty-two fifteen to 22, um, this is this is the render unto Caesar passage that I'm sure you're familiar with. I had originally planned on going from uh, there through verses 23 to 33 as well, but I don't think we're going to get that far uh, just because this lesson is going to include a lot of background and history dealing with the people that we assume we know and understand in the Scriptures. Um, and, and specifically, we're going to be looking at the Pharisees a lot. Um, as, as we think about Jesus' enemies, those who came against Him in His ministry, we have a tendency, at least I know I did as I was learning the Scriptures to begin with, we have a tendency to think of the Pharisees and the Sadducees as being allies against Jesus. Well, they were, in fact, on the exact opposite ends of the theological and political spectrum. They were not allies in anything except their opposition to Jesus. But their desire for Him to be taken off the scene came from completely different places. Okay? And I'll explain a little bit more about that once we get done with our passage. So if you would, stand with me for... Matthew twenty-two, fifteen through 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Let's pray. Father, help us this morning not only to understand who the Pharisees were, but Father, let us also seek to understand how we could stand in danger of following in their path. Help us to understand how important it is for us to hold to the gospel and not to drift off the path and to follow the oral tradition or the law in an empty outside, external obedience like they did. Help us to be true to your word today, in Jesus' name, amen. So, during the period, now like I said, this is going to be a history lesson, so if you don't like history, you're in the wrong place. Um, It's very important for us to understand the difference between the Israel that Jesus is in and the Israel that we think of from the Old Testament, because 
in the 400 years between Malachi and the opening of the Gospels, there's a lot of changes in Israel. There's a lot of political changes. There's a lot of religious changes. There's a lot of um, uh, religious practice changes that take place that are just different from what we think we understand from reading Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. If you read the law and you read what Moses wrote to the people of Israel and then you read about Jesus' Israel, they're different because time has passed and things have changed. In that period, if we go all the way back to the death of Solomon... All right, so we're, we're reaching back almost a thousand years before Christ. Somewhere around 931 BC, Solomon died, right? Solomon had a son. His son's name was Rehoboam. Rehoboam was a proud little knucklehead who did not follow the footsteps of his father. He did not follow the footsteps of his grandfather, but instead he sought the advice of his peers. Okay, youngsters, it's never a good idea to seek out the advice of your peers because they, too, lack experience. And they're never going to encourage you to go the right way. I know, because I was once one of them. All right? So Rehoboam went against the, the way of God. He, he tightened the taxes uh, he increased the, the levies for the military. He made the burden worse on the people of Israel. And we wound up with a split between the northern kingdom, the ten tribes which became known as Israel, which were the tribes of Dan, Naphtali, Manasseh, Reuben, Simeon, Ephraim, Issachar, Zebulun, Gad, and Asher. In case you're counting, that's ten. And then we had the southern kingdom, that, which stayed true to Rehoboam in spite of him being a knucklehead, which were the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. For about 200 years, the northern kingdom was ruled by a series of horrible kings. They had no good ones. At least the southern kingdom occasionally had one who came up and remembered that David was his grandfather. And so he acted that way. He kept the word of God and he lived according to God's covenant. In the northern kingdom for 200 years, up until 732 B.C., all of the kings were wicked. They all followed idolatry. They all had high places set up. They all had Asherah poles set up. They, they worshipped the Baals. They worshipped the gods of the, the people of the land. They turned away from God. And they encouraged the people to go the same way. In 732, the northern kingdom was conquered by the nation of Assyria. The majority of the wealth, uh, the wealthy families, the noble families were taken to the Assyrian capital. Um, it's relatively certain that's what happened to Daniel. That's how he wound up where he was, uh, was, was part of that exile. Um, the remainder of the people, everybody who wasn't a government official, everybody who wasn't wealthy, who wasn't a prosperous businessman, was left in the northern kingdom, right? Because Assyria couldn't very well absorb all the population of the northern ten kingdoms or ten tribes. So what they did was they put their own rulers in place, their own governors, their own uh, political officials 
to govern the land as a territory. And then they took all the people of influence and made them slaves in their capital, right? So, 200 years later, the southern kingdom was absorbed into Babylon after they had defeated Assyria and taken over the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So this was around 597 B.C. Sixty years after that, the Persians defeated the Babylonians. And eventually, under King Cyrus, they allowed the Israelites to go back to Jerusalem and to begin the process of rebuilding the city and rebuilding the temple. The temple was completed around 515 B.C. This is still in the period of the Old Testament, right? The Persians were defeated by the Greeks in 333 B.C. So now we've hit that period that's in between Malachi and the New Testament. From 333 B.C. until about 164 B.C., of course, you remember Alexander the Great died very shortly after Palestine was captured. Um, the, the Palestinian region from 333 to 164, so about 170 years, was ruled by the Ptolemaic Empire, which was uh, centered in Alexandria, Egypt, which was one of Alexander's generals and his descendants, and then the Seleucid Empire, which was the northern general who won, Seleucius, um, and their capital city was in Babylon. Where is Babylon today? Anybody know? It's in Iraq. Okay? So in uh, 164, there was a little scuffle between a Jewish priest and the Seleucid Empire uh, that led to the the revolt um, that was successful. And and that priest or, or Levite or whatever he was that led this, his name was Maccabee, Judas Maccabeus. Have you heard of the Maccabees before? Okay, if you have, or if you can get your hands on a copy of the Apocrypha, which is a series of books, they're not considered scripture, not even by the Catholic Church, even though they have them in their Bible. They are considered uh, the second canon. They're not as authoritative as scripture, but they are worth something. Um, If you can get a hold of them, there are actually books recounting the stories of the Maccabees in the Apocrypha. Um, but anyways, they managed to kick out the solutions, right? And establish their own dynasty, the Hasmonean dynasty. How many of you have ever heard of the Hasmoneans? Probably not many. Okay. So the, the problem with the, the Hasmoneans was they, they were, it was a, a descendant of Levi, right? Who was supposed to be the king in Israel? a descendant of David. David's not of the tribe of Levi. So there was always some tension there because now you have a ruler in Israel who's not of the line of David. 
The Hasmoneans ruled until the rise of the Roman Empire in 63 B.C. Roughly 30 years later, so around 33 B.C., we have the Romans putting in their own ruler in Israel and getting rid of the Hasmonean dynasty. And, and the ruler that they put in was part of the Idumean family. And his name was Herod the Great. You know, the crazy guy who didn't like small children because he had a whole bunch of them murdered because he was jealous for his position when he heard that the Messiah or the Jewish king had been born in Bethlehem. During the time of the Hasmoneans, so we're talking about that period from 164 to 63 B.C. There was a lot of change. Now we've talked about the political landscape. We'll talk about the religious landscape. All right. So when the northern tribes split from the uh, northern tribes split from the southern tribes, what happened to temple worship? It got a whole lot harder for the people in the northern ten tribes, right? Because now they had to go to a different kingdom in order to get to the temple. So they quit. When they did pay lip service to worshiping God, they did it on their own mountain in their own kingdom. You remember when Jesus stopped in uh, Samaria and he was approached by the Samaritan woman at the well? She asked him the question, is it right to worship? The Jews say it's right to worship in Jerusalem, but we worship on the mountain here. Which one's right? And Jesus said that God desires a people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. In other words, Jesus says it's not where but who and how you worship. So the, the temple worship kind of got a little bit scattered when the tribes separated into the two kingdoms. And then you have all the idolatry that comes in from the bad kings. So they really only worship God occasionally, Right? Instead, they worship the Baals, and, and they've got a God for every day of the week, okay, literally. And then the Assyrians come in and capture the rulers, which includes the priests, which includes the religious families, right? And so, more of the worship in the northern kingdoms goes away. And then the southern kingdom gets taken over by the Babylonians, the same thing happens, the the, the royal family, the priestly families, the wealthy families, they get taken up into Babylon. And the rank and file people are left. The temple's gone, right? It's destroyed. So the religious life of Israel has been shattered. Even when the temple starts to be rebuilt, it's the temple. They don't have the Ark of the Covenant. They don't have the implements the, the lampstands and the, the, all the various different pieces that they're supposed to have for worship. Most importantly, they're missing the law. They don't have the book of the law because everything that was in the temple was taken to Babylon, right? So that stuff all has to be restored. And so during this time, we have the rise of the synagogue. I've told you all what the word synagogue means, where that word comes from. Does anybody remember? It's it's a two-part word. The first part, S-Y-N, is like we have in synchronize, 
right? Or synoptic, it means together. Okay? So you have sina, and then you have gog. Because that's a word we use all the time, right? You do, school teacher. Because what do you emphasize in your learning methods when you're doing your, your, your individual education plans? What method of pedagogy are you going to use? Right? Peda, meaning child, the pedagogy, right? Is from the same root word as synagogue. It means to learn. A synagogue was a place of learning together. And so the synagogues sprung up in the exile were people who knew or maybe had fragments of the scrolls were able to come together and to learn God's Word. Their model is what we use when we build church buildings. This is roughly how a synagogue would have been set up, except the seats would have been elevated, more like a theater, and the platform would have been lower. And oh, by the way, in the synagogue, the teacher always sat. Sometimes I wish for a synagogue. No. So the the synagogues came up during this time because they didn't have the temple. They didn't replace worship, but it was a place of teaching. Once the scrolls were recovered from Babylon, once God's Word started being put together, a group of people came up known as scribes. Their job as a specially consecrated section of the Levites, their job was to copy God's Word. They were Xerox. And in copying God's Word, um, (laughs) any of y'all remember elementary school where you got in trouble for doing something and your punishment was having to write something on the board a hundred times? Right? Why? Because then you remember it. Well, what happens when you are a copier of God's Word? Right? You become an expert in God's Word. And so this group of scribes, as time progresses, we have the synagogues and we have the temple being rebuilt and they're they're copying God's Word. A group of scribes who had become experts in the law during the period of the Hasmonean dynasty, understood from God's Word that God's people were supposed to be different. Makes sense. They became the teachers in the synagogue. This is where the word rabbi comes from, is teacher. So they become the rabbis. They become the sages. Okay, and I'm not talking in a mystical sense. I'm talking that person who's got the gray hair, the gray beard, and all the wisdom in the world. Right? Because they know God's Word. And because they knew that God commanded His people to be different, they started coming together as a group, and they called themselves the separated ones. In Aramaic, the word is... Pharisee. Now there is some question that there was a, 
whether they were talking about the separation that comes from obeying God's law or whether they were talking about actual separation from anybody who was not of Israel, we don't know for sure at this point in time. But they taught strict adherence to the holiness code, the Mosaic law, inside the temple, which is what Moses wrote, and outside the temple. They were the ones who developed the oral tradition called the Talmud, if you've ever heard of that, that was a set of interpretations of Moses' law. So where Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard that it was said or you've heard it was written, do not do this. He's referring to the, the Talmud writings and the Torah, the, the books of the law. As the separated ones, they were vehemently, desperately opposed to the Hellenization of the Jews. That was the process by which the Greeks started converting Jews from Arabic and Aramaic and Hebrew into Greek speaking and Greek writing and Greek thinking. Hebrew philosophy was being pushed down and Greek philosophy, a la Aristotle and Plato and Socrates, was being elevated. And the, the Hebrew worldview was being kind of subsumed by the Greek worldview. And the Pharisees were opposed to this because they're God's people. They despised the Romans because they were Gentiles. Anyone associated with the, with the Romans, they loathed them. They kept themselves separate from contact with all Gentiles. The Jewish historian Josephus, one of the best historians we have, though he does have some passages that are kind of controversial, Josephus said this about the Pharisees. They were considered the most expert and accurate expositors of the Jewish law. If you wanted to know what God's Word said, you went to the Pharisees. Because nobody knew God's Word like the Pharisees did. And they hated Jesus. They hated Jesus because He repeatedly bad-mouthed their religion. He repeatedly contradicted their oral law. He repeatedly consorted with unclean people, with Gentiles, with lepers. Right? What does God's law say about a leper? If somebody suspects they have leprosy because they have a certain kind of sore on their body, they are to go to the priest, and if the priest looks at it and it has the right qualifications, the priest declares that they have leprosy, and what are they supposed to do? Outside the city, they're not supposed to have contact with other people. They are supposed to, and by the time of Jesus, they have to wear a bell around their neck, and everywhere they walk, they are to shout at the top of their lungs, unclean, unclean, so people know to stay away from them. And if you come into contact with a leper, you have to follow the same rules. Here we have Jesus coming down from the Sermon on the Mount. He gets to the foot of the mountain, and who does he run into? A leper. And what does he do? He touches him, tells him to go see the priest because he's now clean, 
right? Pharisees, you just touched a leper, dude. That's beyond unclean. That's diseased. He was known to associate in the right way with prostitutes. The woman at the well, who wasn't just a prostitute, she was a Samaritan. Right? They were worse than unclean. Uh, A Pharisee would have a leper over for dinner before they had a Samaritan. With drunkards, with tax collectors even. I mean, there's nobody worse, even in the United States, than the tax collector. Right? That's why that telephone scam has started claiming to be the IRS, because they know that everybody is terrified of the IRS. So they think that they can get you to send them a $100 gift card if they tell you that the IRS is after you. I don't know. They hate Jesus. And so they're trying to find a way to get rid of him. And in verse 15, we see that they are plotting that they want to trip Jesus up with his own words. They want to entangle him in his words. They want to get Jesus to say something that is going to allow them to turn somebody against him. They are regarded as the most learned of scholars when it comes to Jewish law. They had preserved the oral tradition, the foundation of rabbinic Judaism ever since. They wrote it down. They could make the most talented lawyer regret every one of his arguments. All right, I'm talking to the tune of the O.J. Simpson trial. Okay? Cochran's got nothing on these guys. So they come up with their argument, but instead of going to Jesus themselves, they send their students, they send their disciples. Why would they send their disciples? Probably because that fresh-faced innocence would make their statements more authentic, right? Probably because their students hadn't yet come to the point where they wouldn't even talk to Jesus for fear of becoming unclean. So we are told they send their disciples along with the Herodians. Well, that clears things right up, right? Everybody knows who the Herodians are. No, no. There were another political party in Israel who sought the independence from Roman rule. But that's where their commonality with the Pharisees stopped. The Pharisees wanted to restore the kingdom to a descendant of David, get rid of the Romans, and follow God's law. The Herodians wanted to restore the kingdom to a descendant of Herod the Great. because he was such a popular guy, right? Yeah. But they also hated Jesus. Why? Why would they hate Jesus? Because he was the descendant of David. They didn't want a descendant of David. They didn't want somebody who claimed to be a descendant of David. Remember the, the, the triumphal entry? Right? When Jesus is riding into town on that little, little foal of a donkey, right? What were the people shouting? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the son of David. 
Herodians didn't like this. Because that meant that all the people had to do was fall behind Jesus and they would set him up as the king and Herod's dynasty is done. So in this particular case, even though the Herodians and the Pharisees shared nothing in common, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So they go to Jesus together. Look at the way they greet Jesus. We know you're true and you teach the way of God truthfully and you don't care about anybody's opinion because you're not swayed by appearances. They're laying it on thick. All right, you can, you can almost reach out into the words and touch the thick layer of honey that they have put over those words to make them appealing to Jesus. Right? And this isn't just flattery. This is completely over the top. This is fawning. What they didn't realize was that they were teaching or talking the truth. They were speaking truth when they said these things. If they had known that, they probably would have choked on it. So they try to spring the trap. Tell us what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Caesar, not seizure. Wouldn't that be terrible if there was a seizure tax? (laughs) That would be horrible. Is it lawful? When we read that word lawful, what do we think? Legal. Right? Is it legal? What law are they talking about? They're not talking about, does it match up with our legal system to pay taxes? to Who who wrote their legal system? Caesar did. Of course it's legal to pay taxes to Caesar. The word lawful there is talking about being in accord with the law of Moses. Is it permissible under God's law to pay taxes to Caesar? Well, the tax that they were probably talking about was the Roman poll tax, right? The Roman poll tax was collected from Roman subjects, not Roman citizens. Some cities that were particularly wealthy or ruled by a particularly powerful governor weren't required to pay the taxes at all. And because it was taken from Roman-occupied territories, the tax collectors, who were most often natives of that territory, were hated people, shunned by society, and so they would pad the tax with some extra for themselves, like Zacchaeus and Matthew. Right? Is that in accord with God's law? Well, does God's law say anything about a poll tax? Yes, it does, actually. We looked at it a couple of months ago. When Jesus and the disciples were still in Galilee, 
And they came to him and they said, is it lawful to pay the tax? How come your master hasn't paid the tax? That's the Jewish poll tax. Jesus turned to his disciple and said, go catch a fish. When you open the fish's mouth, there's going to be a shekel inside. Take that shekel, half of it's your temple tax, the other half of it's my temple tax. That's the poll tax. Moses had established this. It was, it was in, uh, I forgot to write it down. I think it was in the book of Deuteronomy. I could be wrong. That every male over the age of 20 was required to pay a half shekel. No more, no less. Didn't matter if you were rich. Didn't matter if you were poor. Didn't matter if you were old. As long as you were over 20, you paid a half a shekel. Everybody. It didn't matter if you were a servant. It didn't matter if you were a landowner. It didn't matter if you were the king. David was required to pay a half a shekel every year for the temple tax. Nobody was exempt and nobody was penalized because of their status. So is the Roman poll tax lawful? Is it allowable under God's law? Well, on the one hand, now remember, they're trying to trip Jesus up. They're trying to get Jesus to say something they can use against him. On one hand, they are hoping that Jesus says, of course it's not lawful. Of course it doesn't match up with God's law, because it, it really doesn't. right? It's a corrupt system that rewards those who are powerful and penalizes those who aren't. The tax should be applied to all without partiality. If he says it's not lawful to pay the tax, I can tell you exactly what would have happened. The Pharisees would have run to Pilate and told him, you have a rebel in the city who is telling your subjects not to pay their taxes. Well, the last time there was a tax revolt like that, it led to a very bloody military operation, and a lot of people died. So when the Romans heard about somebody who was a rebel against taxation, they came down on them hard. On the other hand, Jesus could say that since it is not established by Israel, it's not collected for the temple, it's not it's an outside thing, it is lawful. If he does that, then they can go to the people and they can say, look, this Jesus guy that y'all are so hip on, he's saying that it's okay that the Romans steal all of our money in taxes. What's going to happen? They're going to let the crowd take care of him, Right? One historian even called the tax a badge of slavery. That would not be a popular way for the crowd to think of Jesus. So Jesus doesn't have a problem seeing through their flattery. And he decided to pass their test. So he said, okay, show me the coin that's used for the tax. So they pull out a denarius. Now, I want you to think about this for just a minute. 
we wonder why the Pharisees had to send somebody with their disciples who wasn't a Pharisee. They had to partner up with the Herodians, right? What was the coin that was used for the temple tax? Or for the, uh, not for the temple tax, for the poll tax. It was a denarius. That was a Roman coin. It was a Roman coin. It was a Gentile coin, right? The Pharisees were called what? The separated ones? The Pharisees didn't carry Roman coin around in their pocket. That would have defiled them. Why did they have to partner up with a Herodian for this? Just in case. It was probably the Herodian who pulled the denarius out of his pocket. (coughs) Jesus takes the coin. And he says, whose image is on the coin? Whose picture is this? Whose seal is on it? Well, anybody knows that. I mean, if I pull out a quarter and ask you whose picture on it, whose picture's on a quarter? Thank you. I got a couple of confused looks out there. Y'all remember what a quarter looks like, right? All right, let's let's go. If I ask you whose picture is on a five dollar bill. Oh, y'all are sad. Maybe this wasn't as gimme of an answer as, as Jesus's was. Right? The denarius had Caesar's picture on it. It had Caesar's seal. Jesus takes a look at it and he says, Give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar. If that's Caesar's image, Give him his image back. If that's his seal and inscription, give him his seal and inscription back. Well, how are you going to do that without giving him the coin back? Right? You have to. You have to. So Jesus' answer was kind of a non-answer. It wasn't a matter of, is it in accordance with the law to pay the Roman poll tax? Is it in accordance with God's word to pay the occupier's tax that they're stealing from us? Jesus' answer said, be in subjection to the government that God has placed in authority over you. Who else said that? Paul said that. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul said that, right? Be in subjection to the authorities appointed over you. Pick one. There are some who say that Paul wrote that when Nero was in power. All of the authorities. Give Nero back, give Caesar back his image. Give him back his inscription. Give him the denarius. Is that what matters? No. But he doesn't just stop there. He says, give God the things that are his. What's God's? Yes. I I think it's interesting that he says whose image is on the coin. Because we're created in God's image. The Pharisees, Jesus has already been dealing with here, 
in verses, uh, oh, let's see, 23, from chapter 21, verse 23, all the way through, uh, all the way up here to verse 14 so far that we've been looking at, where he keeps telling the, the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious elite, the religious leaders, you're not obedient to God. You're paying him lip service, but you're not doing what he's commanded. You're ignoring the principles of the law that he set forth. Give God the things that are his. Your loyalty. Remember when when Jesus said that they were actually sons of Satan? Who did they claim was their father? Abraham. Abraham is our father. I'm sorry. When Jesus taught the disciples how to pray, he said that we should pray our father to God. Abraham's not my father. By the accounting of the flesh, my father's sitting right there. But my father is God. See, their loyalty wasn't to God. Their loyalty was to Abraham. Abraham is our father. We're going to make it in God's kingdom because we're descendants of the right guy. We're going to make it in God's kingdom because we say the right stuff. We're going to make it into God's kingdom because we do the right stuff. And we don't do the wrong stuff. Not only that, but look at us. We're teachers of the law. We tell people how the law is supposed to be interpreted. We make sure we share with them so that they don't cross the line and make themselves unacceptable to God. Isn't it funny that they they think that everybody else is they, and they can make themselves unacceptable to God, but since we are so high and mighty, we're okay. Right? That's what the Pharisees said. Give God the things that are His. Your loyalty. Your obedience. Not just the keeping of the tradition and the external following the letter of the law. If the letter of the law was what saved, how many of us would be condemned simply because of our clothing today? And I'm not talking about whether it's inappropriate whether it's immodest, I'm, I'm talking about my shirt is a cotton polyester blend. <laughs> my socks are cotton and lycra. The Old Testament law says don't mix fabrics. Why? Why? What is it that's unholy about that? doesn't matter. It's part of the law. The law was never meant to save us. Keeping the law was never meant to be how we are saved. Paul says the law was a school teacher. It was a nanny. It was a guardian while we were young to keep us until Jesus showed up. And then Jesus kept the law. 
That doesn't mean we get to take the law and crumple it up into a ball and throw it away and not pay any attention to it. We are now freed to keep the law. But we keep it not because God's waiting behind the bushes to jump out and say, Aha! You had a cheeseburger yesterday. That violates the law. I guess maybe I'd be safe if I used goat's milk instead of cow's milk, as long as the burger's made out of beef. Because it specifically says you keep your, the, don't boil the mother's meat or the, the kid's meat in the mother's milk. Why? Why? What does that have to do with anything? God's not waiting behind the bushes to catch us when we break the law. He's not waiting for me to eat a shrimp in order to say, aha, unclean. The Pharisees had drifted far from the covenant that God had made with Moses and that Joshua had renewed with the people. Joshua 24 as Joshua's about to die, after they've conquered the promised land, Joshua looks at the people and he says, okay, you have a choice before you. You can either serve God, or you can serve the gods of Egypt, or you can serve the gods of the land that we just came into, but you got to pick one, because you can't have it all the ways. This ain't Burger King, you don't get to have it your way. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What did the people say? We will too. And here we are, and those who were experts in the law failed to serve the Lord. So when these disciples, these Herodians heard Jesus' answer, they were astounded. He had managed to answer the question in such a way that they couldn't trip him up with his words. Give Caesar back his picture. Give Caesar back his inscription. Give God what rightly belongs to him. Because he ain't done that in a while. Duh. So probably the smartest thing they could have done, they left. They walked away from the argument. They didn't try any further to trip him up with his words. Now, what is the application of this? I've got to tell you, it is very, very, very easy for me to forget that God didn't save me because of who I am. It is very easy to think that God chose me because I'm all that in a bag of chips. I am not. It's even easier when I'm talking to people who are lost. When I'm talking to people who are unchurched. When I'm talking to people who don't know if there's a God or not. It's really easy for me to take on the same kind of air 
that the Pharisees had. When Jesus tells us that wherever we go, we're supposed to be making disciples, when He tells the church that we are His witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other most parts of the earth, when He tells us to go with the gospel, I have said this before, I will say it until the day that I can no longer make noise. When you share the gospel with someone, do not fall into the trap of the Pharisees and add something to the gospel. I don't care if they're a drug addict. I don't care if they're an alcoholic. I don't care if they're a prostitute. I don't care if they're a homosexual. I don't care what their particular sin is. The one sin that they need dealt with most of all is what they do with Jesus. When you're honestly sharing the gospel with them, if they make no profession of faith whatsoever, the only thing, the only thing that's going to save them is their relationship with Christ. It's okay to tell them you need to be right with Jesus. But if the word and comes out, there's a problem. Do they need to repent? Yes. Repentance only comes by the conviction of the Spirit. Not by my words. And if my words say, you need to get right with Jesus, and what part are they going to listen to? The and. Because the and is something that our flesh thinks we can do. Don't fall into the trap of the Pharisees. So as Jesus said, render under Caesar. Three weeks ago was tax day. Nobody likes rendering unto Caesar. I know there are a lot of people out there who claim a religious exemption from paying their taxes. Good luck. I only know of one organization, one religious organization that actually gets off the hook with that, and that's the Amish. As Baptists, we don't have that option. So we ought to render under Caesar. That means we ought to be in subjection to the authorities. Whether we agree with them or not, whether we voted for them or not, whether we happen to like what they say or not, because they're not there by accident. God put them there. It means He put the last one there too. And I know some of us didn't do so good in subjection to the authorities during the last administration. Or the one before that. Or the one before that. Or the one before that. <laughs> I, can, I can go a number of years back. Render under Caesar while you render unto God what is his due. 